You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Mark chapter 14, please, if you could take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. Today we are beginning our Easter series or our preparation towards Easter Sunday, Sunday, and we are beginning this series the next few weeks entitled, Truly He is the Son of God. And we are going to be following through Mark chapters 14 through 16 over the next few weeks. So I would encourage you to beginning today and the following days, just take out Mark chapter 14 through 16, read through that portion of Scripture, prepare yourself for next Sunday, and then our prayer times during Holy Week, we're going to be in Mark as well. On Good Friday, we're going to be in Mark. On Easter Sunday, we're going to be in Mark chapters 14 through 16. So you got it? Mark chapters 14 through 16. So I want to encourage you to just just do that over the next number of weeks, to read those chapters for the next number of weeks. Now, if you understand the Gospel of Mark, you will understand that one of the great themes in the Gospel of Mark is that he wants to show us and tell us that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. In fact, he starts in chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse, he says, this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then right near the end of his record, in Mark chapter 15, Verse 39, he uses the words of the centurion, which we will be looking at and on Good Friday. He loses these words in Mark 15, 39. He says, well, indeed, he was the Son of God. So this is one of the main themes. Truly, Jesus is the Son of God. And today, today, we are looking at the, this beginning story in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. And we're turning our attention to the town of Bethany, before the Passover. And we're going to focus our minds this morning and our hearts on the truth that Jesus is truly the Son of God, and because of that, he is worthy of our worship. When Jesus becomes invaluable to you, when he becomes priceless, precious, treasured, When Jesus becomes invaluable, your worship to him will be incredible. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, to get the immensity of what's going on here, you got to go back to the previous two verses, verses 1 and 2, setting up this story in verses 3 through 9. In verses 1 and 2, you have two, it's two days before the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes are plotting to kill Jesus, right? They're trying to figure out... How are we going to get Jesus dead? we got to figure out how to do this. That's the story in verses 1 and 2. And then at the end of our story in verse 10, in chapter 14, verse 10, just look at that verse. It says, Judas, one of the disciples, he, was, he went to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus. So on one side of the story, you have a bunch of guys who are plotting to kill Jesus. On the other side of the story, you have one of his disciples planning to betray Jesus. 
And in the middle of those two stories, you have a flashback to a number of days before the two days before the Passover, actually six days before the Passover, a reminder that there was actually somebody who wanted to celebrate Jesus. This is what our story is about. Not about plotting to kill him, not planning to betray him, but actually lifting him high and celebrating him. This is our story in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. There's this woman who is celebrating Jesus at Simon the leper's house. Not a leper anymore. He had been healed of leprosy, but he is known as Simon the leper. Oh, I wonder who may have healed him. To understand the fullness of the story, it's always good to check out parallel passages. So let's look at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is the same story just told by the, by the Gospel of John. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those of of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mark doesn't tell us all these details, but John does. John reminds us this happened six days before the Passover. Jesus is in Bethany. Lazarus is there, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. Right? Lazarus is there. Martha's there doing what Martha does really well. She's serving as an act of worship to Jesus. And then Mary as an act of worship. Oh, oh, this woman, this unnamed woman in the Gospel of Mark is, come on, help me, Mary. It's Mary. She takes out this expensive anointment, this oil, this perfume, and she pours it out on his, on his feet, it says here in, in John's Gospel. And they gave a dinner for him there. He was the guest of honor. They were giving him an appreciation dinner, which totally makes sense in John's gospel because if you just go to the chapter before, in John chapter 11, that's the chapter where Jesus announced to everybody in chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then in chapter 11, verse 43, he brings somebody back to life. He actually goes to the tomb where Lazarus had been buried and he calls him out. Calls him out. He walks out from the tomb. No wonder they're giving an appreciation dinner for Jesus. Lazarus is raised from the dead. This house is full of joy. It's full of celebration. It's full of love towards Jesus. The mood in this house is that Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's actually worthy of extravagant worship. That's our first point. He's worthy of extravagant worship. Look again, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, right, they're, they're eating dinner, a woman comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Mary takes this very costly alabaster flask full of anointment and pours it over the head of Jesus. Jesus. 
what we learn about this is that it's very expensive. It's an expensive gift. In fact, the text says it's very costly. It was imported perfume oil from India, pure nard. A street value, you'll see street value in verse 5, you'll see this, of, of being over 300 denarii, which is over a year's worth of wages for a common worker in, in Jewish culture during that time. They could have fed at least 300 families food for a day with the amount of what that was worth. We don't know where she got it from. Maybe it was a family heirloom. Maybe it was passed down to her from her mother. Maybe it was part of her dowry. Maybe they all pitched in. I don't know if they all pitched in. That seems like a lot of money to me to kind of pitch in and, and buy this kind of ointment at this point. All we know is it's really, really, really expensive. And because it's really, really, really expensive, it was very costly, it says, it obviously was a sacrificial gift that she gave. Not only expensive, but it cost her something. Okay, It cost her something to do this. Not only did it cost her something to do this, but it was excessive. It was elaborate what she did. She poured it over his head. Now, it's, it's not unusual to anoint the head of the guest of honor at a, at a, at a, a festival or a, a appreciation dinner in Jewish culture. It's not normal. In fact, you can see that in Psalm 23, verse 5. That beautiful psalm in Psalm 23, 5, where it talks about how the Lord is our shepherd. And one of the things, one of the benefits of the Lord being our shepherd is that even in the midst of enemies, he lays out a banqueting table. He lays out a table in the presence of our enemies. And it says he anoints our head with oil and our cup continues to overflow. What's the picture in Psalm 23 verse 5? The picture is of God making us the guest of honor at his appreciation dinner. And he anoints our head with oil. And of course, you would never let the guest of honor's cup not continue to overflow. So it's not unusual in Jewish culture for this to happen, for them to anoint. But she doesn't just anoint, she pours it. Like, she pours it out. So much so that John 12 tells us that not only was his head anointed, but she used the same oil to anoint Jesus' feet and to wipe his feet clean with her hair. In other words, there's a totality and there's a completeness to this act from head to toe. No holding back. Full-out honor. Full-out celebration. Full-out worship of Jesus. That's what's going on. An absolute, total, full-out worship of Jesus. It was costly, it was expensive, it, it, was, it, was, it was sacrificial, it was elaborate, and it was misunderstood. Totally misunderstood, challenged, and condemned. Look at verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. They scolded her. In other words, they, they look at what's going on. The disciples, some of the disciples, look at what Mary's doing, and they say, that's a waste. 
You have to stop and pause, and you have to picture this. Mary is doing this to Jesus, and the disciples are saying, that's a waste. What an absolute waste. Why is the anointment being wasted like that? Why is she doing that? It says they were indignant. They were angry. They were, they were so, so angry about it. They were like, they were amped up inside of their souls as they're seeing this woman do this to Jesus. They're amped up inside. They're angry about what, about what she is doing. And under the disguise of wisdom, they express condemnation. Right? During that time period, during the Passover, it would not be unusual for them to give alms for the poor but under the guise, under the disguise of wisdom, they express condemnation. It says they scolded her. Literally, that word means to snort like a horse. Right? So you understand, you understand how angry they are. They are so upset that someone would do this for Jesus. I mean, I know you're reading, you're reading the story and go, oh, that's really nice. Look at what she's done. You need to understand these disciples are amped up angry about the fact that she's doing this to Jesus. And under the disguise of wisdom, they condemn her. They snort like a horse. I can't believe you're doing that. Stop it. And so as it is in any narrative story, it's important for us to try to place ourselves in the story. And we have to, I have to ask you this question, the same question I asked myself this morning. When it comes to Jesus, am I more like Mary or am I more like the disciples? Mary, who is like full out, no holding back, extravagant worship of Jesus. Or the disciples who don't see worship at all, they don't see the celebration as appropriate, they see it as a lack of wisdom and flat-out waste. Now, this isn't the only story that I tend to struggle with from time to time, you know, when I kind of read through stories. I'm reminded of this story, like in Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 44, where Jesus is telling a story about the widow who gave everything that she had. She had these these two little coins, and she dropped them into the temple treasury. The disciples are there, and they're watching this woman do this, and Jesus says, she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Worship? Wisdom? Waste? Jesus sees it as worship. Most people would say, at a, at, a, at a minimum, that was, that, that was not wise. How could she give everything that she had? Or think about the words of Jesus to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, when he tells him this in verse 21. He says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Right? He, Jesus recognizes that in his life there's a massive obstacle in his life and he challenges him with that and he says, all right, what you need to do is you need to, get, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, right? Just, just give it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
Was that why? Why is why? You think, well, it must be. It came from the, came from the lips of Jesus. It must be wise, right? Well, of course it's why. But I tell you, so many of us, so many of us hide behind the disguise of wisdom. I was reminded of these words of Adoniram Judson, who wrote to his future father-in-law in the year 1812. He was asking for the hand of his soon-to-be wife, and this is what he said. Okay, I know it's 1812, but just hang in there. Listen to what he says. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. You say, well, why is he saying that? Well, because he was about to go become a missionary to India and then eventually to Burma. So he's saying to his future father-in-law, are you willing to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in the world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death? Can you consent to all this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamation of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Oh man, I've got I'm just so glad my son-in-law didn't send me that letter. <laughs> but it really begs the question, doesn't it? it really, doesn't it not does it not beg the question? You're like I I understand in our lives the need for wisdom, but I also know there are times when we wear the mask of wisdom, the disguise of wisdom to hide the true idols in our lives. Idols of comfort, idols of convenience, idols of security and significance and acceptance. When I read this story in Mark chapter 14, I am left with this question. Why, why am I not worshiping more like Mary? What's stopping me from worshiping Jesus like this? And this leads us to our second point. She had an all-encompassing worth of Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. See, when Jesus is invaluable, our worship becomes incredible, and Jesus rebukes his disciples in verse 6. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Stop bothering her. And he reveals her worship as beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, wouldn't you love to hear Jesus say about your worship of him, that was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. That word means pure. It means noble. It means perfect. It means complete. Her worship wasn't unwise, it wasn't wasteful, it was beautiful. And Jesus in this one sentence in these sentences is saying to his disciples, this is what you should be doing. You should be worshiping me like she does. Now what is it that makes 
her worship so beautiful to Jesus? Is it the cost? Is it how expensive the gift was? Is it the pouring out of the, the, it's, it's how, uh, this expensive oil? Is it about the oil? No, it's not the size of the check. It's her heart. Her worship reveals to Jesus that he was her priority. Look at what it says in verse 7. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, I, I don't know if I need to defend the fact that Jesus loved the poor. I mean, I'm not sure that. I know in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, one of the first messages that Jesus ever preached, he quotes from Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Right? The poor are always on Jesus' heart. The scriptures are full of examples of how much God loves the poor, how Jesus loves the poor, how we are called as followers of Jesus Christ to minister to the poor and to the marginalized. The point in this story, the point that Jesus is making is not that he's against the poor, but he's trying to say to her, look at her, she made me her priority. She's made me her priority. He says, you'll always have this, but you won't always have me. And she knew that. She had, a, she had some kind of sense. She, she placed Jesus as her priority. And it's, her worship is beautiful, not because of the, how expensive it was, but because she was making Jesus her priority. He was worth everything to her. Now, that shouldn't be too surprising I mean, you, you know the story. Many of you know the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Mary had experienced the grace and the mercy of Jesus in her own life. She, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, sat actually at his feet and listened to his teaching. She loved Jesus and he loved her. I mean, Jesus had a really special relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I mean, it's, very, it's obvious when you read through the Gospels. And she had experienced the power of Jesus in the resurrection of her brother. When you see your dead brother walking out of a grave, it's going to bring like a lot of affection, thankfulness, and wonder. Don't you think? Yet, not all the disciples who experienced all those same things respond in the same way. Jesus is everything to her. He is her priority. That's what makes her worship beautiful. And it's beautiful not only because it was her pri he was her priority, but also because it was preparatory. Look at what it says in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So not only is she expressing her priority about Jesus, but her act is actually preparing Jesus for his death and for his burial. And of course, everybody's asking, well, did she know? Did she know? Did she know? Did she actually know that Jesus was going to die? Well, I, 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 we don't know. She is the one that was usually sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his words, so it wouldn't be too far-fetched to think that she kind of thought that Jesus was talking a little bit about the fact that he's about to die. But we really don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus sees 
her act of worship, that Jesus recognizes that God is doing something here in the midst of her action of worship, that God himself is anointing him. It's God's sovereign way of preparing him for what's about to happen next, and she attributes her act of worship as preparation for the burial. It's a gospel act. She's, through this worship, is expressing the death and the burial and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have experienced over 50 Easter's as a follower of Jesus Christ. I did the math this week. I know the story. But the good news of Jesus can never become old news. It can never become old news. And what happens in Mark chapters 14, 15, and 16, what really happened over 2,000 years, hear me out, what really happened, what really happened over 2,000 years ago is it changed everything. Where would I be without Jesus? Some of you here this morning, where would you be without Jesus? Jesus has rescued, rescued me from judgment. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all disobey God. We all live for ourselves and our own glory and don't live for God's glory. There is none that are righteous. No, not one. And God's holiness demands judgment. God saves, out of his grace, God saves sinners. He saves sinners. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whosoever should believe in him, right, should have what? Everlasting eternal life. God saves sinners. We are, are just our justice is we deserve God's judgment for our sin. But Jesus took our place. He took our place. He died on the cross. He took on God's judgment. He took on my judgment so that we can agree with the Apostle Paul. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. By grace we are saved through faith. He has rescued us. He's rescued me from judgment. He's rescued me from restlessness, from having to live a life where I'm trying to earn God's favor and acceptance over and over again by all the good things I'm supposed to do. There's nothing I can do for God that will cause him to love me more and nothing that I could do that would cause him to love me less. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus has rescued me from that kind of life. I, I'm in Christ and because I'm in Christ, God sees me as justified. I'm declared to be righteous. He's rescued me from being lost. I'm convinced that without Jesus, I would probably be living life right now addicted to, to li the moments of trying to feel good as much as possible. You say, well, you don't kind of look like that kind of person. Well, you don't really know my heart. 
All I know is that Jesus has rescued me from that. He's rescued me from that. He has saved me too. He saved me to new life because I'm in Christ. He's in me and I am actually able in his power in my life, the spirit of God in me, to actually say no to ungodliness now. He's saved me into a new family, an eternal family. There's a a father who is in heaven, my heavenly father, who loves me, who protects me, who provides for me, who guides me, who always does good for me. Always does good for me. I'm in this eternal family. I I have brothers and I have sisters from every nation by grace through faith. Jesus has saved me to hope, eternal hope, new heavens, new earth, uh, to know that my future is secure. He saved me to meaning and purpose. I actually get to get up every single day and I get to live for him. That's purpose. It's not old news. This is, that's today's good news. Every single day's good news. And so that's why it says in chapter 14, verse 8, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. He says, there's, there's no hesitation, just a complete, total response in her life. I kind of envision it this way. She knows that Jesus is coming over for dinner. They're throwing this dinner, and she looks around the house, and she grabs the one thing that she believes will express to Jesus how much she loves him. And so she just, she just grabs the alabaster flask. What's your alabaster flask? In response to the all-encompassing worth of Jesus, the fact that he has indeed rescued you from and saved you to, in light of his all-encompassing worth, what is your alabaster flask? The one that you're going to break open and you're just going to pour all over Jesus. You're just going to say, Jesus, this, you deserve this. This is what you deserve. You are worth everything to me. I think Paul summarizes it well in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or your reasonable act of worship. You say, oh, man, I I did that a long time ago. No, 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 you're not not reading the verse right. This This isn't about, like, something that you did a long time ago. This is Paul saying, like, every single day, every single day you take out your alabaster flask. Paul's saying, what's your alabaster flask? He's saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your whole self. Present everything that you have. Give everything that you have for Jesus. Everything. Nothing is off the table. Everything. The whole thing. That, and he says, that's your, it's your spiritual or your reasonable 
act of worship, he says here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. That's what our alabaster flask is. We present ourselves, we present everything to Jesus. We don't hold back. We hold absolutely nothing back. Why? Because Jesus is, our all, is, is worth everything to us. We have all-encompassing worth of Jesus. It, it touches every part of our life. And this leads then to our third point, verse 9. It leads to an enduring witness. Look what it says in verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now that is awesome. Man, talk about a legacy. Do you think she knew that? Did you think not, she had no she was not thinking about anything about herself in that moment. She had like zero thoughts about herself. Zero thoughts about all she could think about was Jesus and yet in that moment the only thing Jesus can think about is her. Jesus gives her a special place in history. He loves her. He loves her extravagant, her beautiful worship, so much so that he memorializes it. That's what I love about this. this these verses tell us very clearly that Jesus loves extravagant worship of him that responds to the all-encompassing worth that we have of Jesus in our lives. I'm convinced of this, that there are many of us in this room who over the last number of months have gotten our eyes off of Jesus. And there's been very little alabaster flask moments. And I believe in the sovereignty of God that God is calling you right now to renew your worship of him. To join in the throne room of heaven that right now, at this moment, is worshiping with an eternal, an eternal extravagant worship. There's no holding back in heaven. Like, zero holding back. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Right? This is going to happen in the future, yes, but it's happening right now. There are millions of people standing around the throne who are declaring to the Lamb, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy of everything. Every, and, and you can just, it's almost like the curtain of heaven is being pulled back for us in this moment, and we're being reminded that we're being invited into the throne room of heaven and what's happening right now. There are alabaster flasks being broken all over heaven right now. And may it be so in our lives as well, because we don't hold back when we understand that Jesus is invaluable, because what happens when Jesus is invaluable is our worship becomes incredible. 
So let's pray together now. Father, right now, I just, Spirit, I ask that you would do what you promised to do. Take the truths of Scripture, penetrate into our hearts. I pray that my brothers and sisters this morning, those of us that have been, our hearts have been pricked as we've kind of worked our way through this, that we would not hold back. That this moment and this Easter season would be a time of of extravagant worship. Extravagant worship. Bring those who are lost, bring those who are restless to faith in Jesus Christ. Bring those of us who have gotten our eyes off of Jesus, bring us back to the worth of Jesus, the all-encompassing worth of Jesus, how valuable he is to us, and allow our lives to be that alabaster flask every single day, every single morning, every single moment. God, we just we want so much this to be about Jesus. He's rescued us. He's saved us. Oh God, please. Don't let us waste our lives. Don't let us waste our moments. We just want this to be about you. For there's only one who is worthy. Only one who is worthy of our worship. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, only Jesus. God, please, do your work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.